We're probably all familiar with the death of Jesus on the cross. And this familiarity is both good and it can be bad. It's good that we know what Jesus has done. It's good if we think often about what Jesus has done for us. But it can be bad if the familiarity with the things of Christ and what He has done for us, it it removes the awe and the wonder that we would say Jesus died for us, much like we would say, well, the news said somebody died in a shooting yesterday. It would have no impact. It would have no meaning on us. We don't want to to lose or, or forget the personal nature of what was done for us on the cross. What happened on the cross was done for me. What happened on the cross was done for you. Now this point was really driven home to me several years ago during Holy Week. I was sitting at home wanting to passage to really kind of one passage to meditate on all week long, uh, to, to read every day, to think about. And as I was trying to figure out what passage to go through, Holy Spirit brought Isaiah 52, 13 through 53, 12 to my mind. And I thought, what better passage to really focus on during Holy Week than the prophecy of Jesus as the suffering servant. Now, I'm going to read it, but I want you to open up to it. You don't have to stand. We're not going to, it's not going to be a regular, normal sermon like what you might think. So open it up to it. Isaiah 52, 13, page 559 in the Pew Bible. And I'm going, to, I'm going to read it, and I kind of want you to follow along in your Bible. Isaiah 52:13. Behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. Just as many were appalled at you, my people. So his appearance was marred beyond that of a man, and his form beyond the sons of mankind. So he will sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths on account of him. What they had not been told, they will see. And what they had not heard, they will understand. Who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of dry ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we would look at him, nor an appearance that we would take pleasure in him. He was despised and abandoned by men, a man of great pain and familiar with sickness, and like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised, and we had no regard for him. However, it was our sicknesses that he himself bore, and our pains that he carried. Yet we assumed that he had been afflicted and struck down by God and humiliated, but he was pierced for our offenses. He was crushed for our wrongdoings. The punishment for our well-being was laid upon him. And by his wounds, we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the wrongdoing of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. And like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living? For the wrongdoing of my people to whom the blow was due. And his grave was assigned with wicked men. Yet he was with the rich man in his death, 
because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. But the Lord desired to crush him, causing him grief. If he renders himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring. He will prolong his days and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper at his hands. And as a result of the anguish for his soul, of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied by his knowledge. The righteous one, my servant, will justify many and he will bear their wrongdoing. Therefore, I will lock him a portion with the great and he will divide the plunder with the strong because he poured out his life unto death and was counted with the wrongdoers. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for wrongdoers. As I was reading through the passage that Holy Week, the Holy Spirit kept saying to me, for you, for you, for you. And it affected me deeply as I was going through there. So much so that in every Bible I've used since then, I have gone through here and I've put myself in the story by writing for me or my to make sure as I read this, I always know what happened, what this describes. It happened for me. And, and what we're going to do now is something that's not something we do often, uh, but it's something we probably should do more of, a bit of a responsive reading. And, and we're going to read through Isaiah 53. I'll put the words up on the, the screen. And I'll read the words in white. And you'll read the words in black. We'll all read together. It says, Behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted, just as many were appalled by you, my servant. So his appearance was marred beyond that of a man for me, and his form beyond the sons of mankind for me. So he will sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths on account of him. For what they had not been told, they will see, and what they had not heard, they will understand. Who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of dry ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look at him, nor an appearance that we would take pleasure in him. He was despised and abandoned by men for me, a man of great pain and familiar with sickness, and like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised for me, and I had no regard for him. However, it was my sicknesses that he himself bore, and my pains that he carried. Yet I assumed that he had been afflicted and struck down by God and humiliated. But he was pierced for my offenses. He was crushed for my wrongdoings. The punishment for my well-being was laid upon him, and by his wounds I am healed. Like a sheep, I have gone astray. I have turned to my own way, but the Lord has caused my wrongdoings to fall upon him. He was oppressed and afflicted for me, yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that is silent before its shearers. So he did not open his mouth for me by oppression and judgment. He was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living for me, for my wrongdoing, the blow was due. And the grave was and his grave was assigned with wicked men for me, yet was with a rich man in his death because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. But the Lord desired to crush him for me, causing him grief for me. If he renders himself as a guilt offering for me, he will see his offspring and he will prolong his days and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper at his hand. And as a result, the anguish of his soul for me. 
he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many, including me. For he bore my wrongdoings. Therefore, I will lock him a portion with the great, and he will divide plunder with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death for me, and he was counted with the wrongdoers for me. Yet he himself bore my wrongdoings and interceded for me a wrongdoer. It's good for us to take time to think about what Jesus has done for us, to personalize it. He didn't just die for something out there somewhere. He didn't just die for people over there. He died for me. He died for my sin. And what Jesus has done for us, it demands a response from us. We cannot be unmoved at what the Holy Son of God has done on the cross, on our behalf. It, it's not, and even it's not even a, like a suggestion that we respond. In God's word, it is a command. We are commanded to respond to the message of the life and the death of Jesus. And the, the response that is commanded for us is first to repent. Repentance is a change of mind. About God and sin resulting in a change of life. Repentance isn't something that God's word says you might consider doing. It is a command. When you read the sermons of Jesus, he commanded people to repent. In Acts 17, we are told all men everywhere are commanded to repent. We are commanded to accept the fact God is right and we are wrong. God is right about our sin. It is serious. It is our fault. It is grievous and it is against Him. And it does make us guilty in His sight. God is right and we are wrong about our righteousness. We have none. On our own, we have no righteousness. Our righteousness is as filthy rags on our own. Our good deeds. So think about that. That is, that is a mind-blowing concept. Isaiah, God through Isaiah does not say our sins are like filthy rags. God through Isaiah says our righteousness, our very best is like filthy rags. And if there is one thing we as humans like, it is to promote our own righteousness and how good we are. And yet God says that is not true of us at all. So we must repent. Change our view. God is right about our lack of righteousness. God is right about the fact we need righteousness. Well, where is that righteousness found? Well, that's the next part of the response. To believe. To believe on Jesus. It's not to believe that there's a God out there somewhere. That's not enough. It's not to believe that there was a man named Jesus who lived and died and something happened to his body. That's not enough. We must believe that Jesus did all of those things we read about in Isaiah. He did them for us. He did them for me individually, for you. It is to believe that though my sins are as scarlet, though my righteousness is as filthy rags, God through Christ can cleanse me and make me white as snow. That God can give me the righteousness of God through Christ and I would be righteous, not because of my good deeds, not because I turned over a new leaf, not because of my religiosity, but I am righteous because of and only because of Jesus, 
That is the primary thing we have to believe about Jesus. And if there is one stumbling block, we as humans, as Americans, stumble over in believing Jesus, it is that we are a self-righteous lot. And to believe that our only righteousness comes from Jesus is a stumbling block. And as long as it is, we are separated from Christ, separated from God, separated from salvation. We must believe that Christ alone is our hope and our salvation. Well, if I I repent, I change my view. And if I believe on Jesus, the natural response will then be begin to live for Jesus. I mean, if he did all of these things we just looked at and he did them for me. How could I not live for him? If he legitimately is who we as Christians say he is, that he is the God of heaven who spoke universe into existence, that that came to earth, lived a sinless life, died on the cross for our sins, rose on the third day, ascended into heaven, ever lives to make intercession for us. If If he is all of those things and he did all of that stuff for us, how could we not live for him? Well, the reality is we can't. Even the grace of God teaches us, according to Titus 2, to deny ungodliness and worldly lusts and to live righteously, holy and blamelessly in this present world. There is nothing within us that calls upon us to deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow Jesus. We have not been born again. The spirit who lives within us calls us to follow Jesus. The grace that we have been given to cover our sins teaches us to follow Jesus. If there is no desire to follow Jesus, be sure there is no salvation from Jesus. Now these are individual responses. Each one of us has to make that response on our own. Nobody could do it for us. Our parents can't do it. Our spouses can't do it. We can't do it on behalf of our children. We must make it. And if we choose to embrace God's command to repent, believe, and to follow Jesus, then we only have one other choice, and that is to reject Jesus. That's it. Truly, I say to you, there are only two paths of life. The narrow way that leads to life, the broad path that leads to death. There's no middle ground. There's nothing in between. When this life is over and people die... They go to be with the Lord or they go to the place of judgment. There's no in-between. There's no purgatory. There's no place where you can go to work off your bad deeds and, and earn your way up. There's nothing. There's heaven. There's hell. The end. And if we choose to reject Jesus' call to repent, believe, and follow Him, we reject Him completely and we reject His salvation. And we will bear the consequences of those actions throughout all of eternity. The reason I want to take the time to do this today, talk about this really quickly, is because today we're going to take part in the Lord's Supper. And when we take part in the Lord's Supper, we want to have a hyper focus on Jesus, who he is and on what he's done. On the night of his betrayal, Jesus instituted what we call the Lord's Supper for his church to observe perpetually as a reminder of what he has done. On the cross. As we take part in this. We are doing something. That Jesus established. The apostles carried on. And the church has consistently done. 
since the time of the apostles. Many things have changed in the way churches do services. There was a time where there were no organs or pianos in church, but now there are things have changed. There was a time where there were no padded pews, but now there are things have changed. There was a time where there were no words cast up on the wall, but now there are things have changed. But there has never been a time when the church of Jesus Christ did not gather together, celebrate the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ through the Lord's Supper. Taking part in the Lord's Supper, what we're about to do, it is an act of worship. Often, we narrowly and and wrongly limit worship to music and singing. Now, to be sure, music and singing are acts of worship, but they are just acts of worship. They are not the only way to worship. Worship is demonstrating the worth of something, in, in our case, Jesus. As we take part in the Lord's Supper, we are not following a meaningless religious ritual. Instead, we are worshiping our Savior through a visual reminder of what He has done for us on the cross. Every part of the Lord's Supper has meaning. The meaning is not something we give to it. It's not my idea. It's not a free will Baptist idea. It is a meaning Jesus Himself has given to it. Turn in your Bible to 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23, page 877. First Corinthians 11, verse 23. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying... This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now, most of us have probably taken part in the Lord's Supper on numerous occasions. So we know the significance of each part of the service. But again, because of what we're doing and the sacredness of what we're doing, it's good to to remind ourselves of these familiar things so they don't lose their significance or we aren't slight or flippant with what we're doing. We see in verse 24, he says that this, he broke the bread and said, this is my body, which is given for you. We're reminded the bread we're going to eat today. It represents the body of Christ, the body broken on the cross. The body broken on the cross for us. As we eat the bread, we are reminding of ourselves, reminding ourselves of the abuse and the punishment Jesus bore in our place. Verse 25 says, in the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. We're reminded that the the cup that we drink represents The blood of Jesus shed to establish a new covenant between God and us. Covenant is an agreement. One party agrees to do one thing. The other party agrees to do the other. Often the covenant was sealed 
in blood or something significant. In this case, it was sealed in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. In this new covenant we have with God, we are born again. And we are made into an entirely different creation in Christ. Our sins are forgiven, taken away. And we are freed, forever freed from condemnation. So our sins are remembered no more. Unlike in the old covenant, where they made sacrifices year after year to remind them of their sins and their failures. We, there is one sacrifice for all time given on our behalf. And they're taken away completely. We are adopted as children of the Most High God. In the old covenant, the nation was considered the, the children of God, but the individual was never would never have called God their father. But in the, the new covenant, we have a spirit of adoption that lives within us that enables us to cry out, Abba, Father. We are heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. We are given the Holy Spirit as a down payment. All the rest of our inheritance. I just want you to think a second. How great must our inheritance be if one third of the Trinity is given to us as the the down payment of everything that will be ours. And the Holy Spirit comes to live within us and he guides us. And He indwells us. And and He bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. So we don't have to, to wonder if we're saved. We can know beyond a shadow of a doubt. We are truly children of the Most High God. We have unlimited access to God in prayer. They didn't have that so much in the Old Testament. They They could pray, but they couldn't go into the presence of God like we can. We have a hope so great... The trials of this life cannot be compared to it. And and more, very, very much more. As we drink the cup, we're reminding ourselves that while these things were free to us, they cost Jesus His very life. We freely receive from His hands the gifts and the promises that He paid for with His body and His blood and His life. Look at verse 24, 26, the end. Do this in remembrance of Me. Do this in remembrance of Me. There is much more to taking part in the Lord's Supper in remembrance of Jesus than a vague reflection (coughs) on Jesus Or the cross. Instead it is to have a a, a hyper focus. Focus our hearts and our minds on the person and the work of Christ on our behalf. Everything we do is to engage our minds and our imaginations in such a way that we have tunnel vision. So that all we see or all we think about is Jesus. As we take part in the Lord's Supper... We ought to have a laser-like focus on Jesus, who He is, what He has done for us on the cross. Look at verse 26. For as often as you drink this bread and eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. Every time we do this, we are proclaiming the Lord's death. 
It is a visual representation of the cross. We break the bread as his body was broken. We drink the blood, the cup as his blood was shed. It is a visual representation of what he has done for us. But it's not merely a remembrance of what happened. It is also a looking forward until he comes. As we do this, we're saying what Jesus has done for us is at a specific point in the past. There is a day coming where what he began will be completed in us. And we are looking forward to that coming. Part of what it means to proclaim the Lord's death as we take part in the Lord's Supper is that we are identifying ourselves with Jesus. As we eat the bread and drink the cup, we are saying Jesus died for me. That what he did was for me. It is a declaration that we have embraced the sacrifice of Jesus in our place. That we are righteous because of what Jesus has done and that our redemption is based upon Jesus. When we eat the bread and drink the cup, we are declaring we belong to Christ in a very real way taking part in the Lord's Supper is a visual testimony of our desire and determination to deny ourselves take up our crosses and follow Jesus it is a way of saying Jesus is Lord but not merely Lord out there somewhere Jesus is Lord over me Jesus is my Lord. Jesus is my Savior. Jesus is my all. Therefore, the Lord's Supper is a sacred event and must be taken part of in the right way with the right attitude. Now, the church in Corinth was not doing this. And Paul addresses it in a letter to them. Look at what he says in verse 27. Therefore, whoever eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy way shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. Now, I like how my Bible, the New American Standard, says in an unworthy way. Some translations say take part in it unworthily, which is tough considering we're all unworthy. And our unworthiness is why we need Jesus to begin with. Apart from Jesus, none of us are worthy in any way. The problem in Corinth was the way they were taking part in the Lord's Supper. It was unworthy of what they were remembering. It was unworthy of what they were declaring. And in this chapter, Paul, he reveals, he lists several ways they were taking part in the Lord's Supper in an unworthy way. There was, there was division in the church. Look at verse 18. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you. And in part, I believe it. They were fussing. They were fighting with one another. There was no unity within the church at all. Picture them, if you would, as they gathered together, getting together and murmuring and griping about one another. There being a, an unwillingness to forgive one another for some way that they've wronged them. There was an, an unyieldedness over secondary, non-essential issues. My way or the highway was their motto. There were factions and there were politicking. Look at verse 19. For there also have to be factions among you, so that those who are approved may become evident among you. Well, since they're fussing and fighting anyway, 
Might as well form political factions. If I'm going to fuss and fight with people, I better make sure I get more people on my team than they have on their team. And so that's what they were doing. They were doing everything they could to get more people on their side so that their faction was the larger faction. They had more influence. They had more uh, authority, more more votes if they were Baptist and and did voting. It was a way to just group together and get everybody on their team. There was a spirit of hypocrisy. Look at verse 20. Therefore, when you come together, it's not to eat the Lord's Supper. Paul says when they came together, it wasn't to take part in the Lord's Supper. Now, that doesn't mean they weren't saying it was. It was. They claimed when they came together for their time to take part in the Lord's Supper, that's what they were doing. They were coming to proclaim the Lord's death. They were pretending. They were actually there for very different reasons. Now, the reasons could be varied. We're not given all the reasons. Some could have been there because they were trying to make a show. Right? Not, not a show like, look at me, but a show like, well, I've got to check in so people will see I'm there. And so I've checked my box and I've gone to church for the day. Uh, others may come to keep up appearances. Others may come because if I don't go, somebody may get somebody else on their team or call somebody off my team onto their team. And so I've got to go to make sure my team stays together. Whatever it was, they claimed they were there for one reason, but it was really something else as they took part in the Lord's Supper and it was hypocritical and, and not good. There was selfish indulgence. Look at verse 21. For when you eat, each one takes his own supper first and one goes hungry while another gets drunk. Now the way they took part in the Lord's Supper, a little bit different than the way that we tend to do it. It seems what they did included what we would call a fellowship meal. Agape, love feast, is kind of what they called them in their day. And the whole idea was to have a common meal where everyone shared. Jew and Gentile, slave and free, upper class, lower class, rich and poor, educated and uneducated, male and female, adults and children. All came together as equals. Equal parts in the body of Christ. And what what would better testify of, of the power of Jesus to make all things new than these people from these differing backgrounds to lay aside their differences and say, we are no, we are one in Christ. That's what should have happened. But what did happen was when they gathered together, they were focused on themselves. And their wants. And they broke off into factions. And they neglected people who weren't a part of their faction. And the result was that the the wealthy had more than enough. Because what they would do is they would say, well, you're on my team, so we'll eat this. And if you're not on my team, you, you go over there and you do with yourself. So those who were wealthy brought a lot and had a lot and they ate to indulgence. And those who were poor were shamed. Because they didn't have enough for themselves or for others. Each looked out and cared for number one. They didn't care about the shame they brought to the church. They didn't care about the reproach they brought to Christ. They didn't care about the feelings and the hurts that they were inflicting on their brothers and sisters in Christ. What they cared about in that moment was just them. And all of this simply demonstrated they were careless about the sacredness 
of the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper had gone from a sacred time of proclaiming the death of Jesus and their allegiance to Jesus to a tradition they were just taking part in. The meaning of what they were supposed to be doing was long gone. And all that was left was a worshipless, worthless, religious ritual. Verse 17. Now in giving this next instruction, I do not praise you. Jesus was not even remotely pleased by what they were doing. A part of what we need to see is we can take part in the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner, unworthy way, through our attitude as well as our actions. Attitudes of divisiveness, hypocrisy, pride, selfishness. These are unworthy attitudes for the Lord's Supper. Actions such as seeking to cause strife, Living in unconfessed sin or active rebellion against the Christ we're proclaiming allegiance to. Are actions unworthy of the Lord's Supper. And lest we think this is a minor thing. God's word lays out some serious consequences for taking part in the Lord's Supper in an unworthy way. Look at verse 27. Therefore, whoever eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy way shall be guilty. Of the body and the blood of the Lord. Taking part of the Lord's Supper in an unworthy way makes us guilty. The body and the blood of the Lord. The idea here seems to be that the person will be held accountable. Because they are sinning against the Lord. They are pretending to declare their allegiance to. How serious are the consequences of being guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord? Look at verse 29. For the one who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself. If we do not properly recognize the body of Christ for this reason, many among you are weak and sick and a number are asleep. The one who takes part in the Lord's Supper in an unworthy way eats and drinks judgment to himself. For he has not reverenced the sacrifice of Christ as he should. Paul gave examples of consequences. When he says that there's a number who are asleep, he's not talking about they're taking a nap. He means they're dead. The picture is that God had killed them in judgment. For taking part in the Lord's Supper in an unworthy way. The consequences are so severe because of what we're remembering through the Lord's Supper. When we take part in the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner, we insult and we offend the Lord Jesus Christ. We treat his death as a common thing, unworthy of respect, unworthy of honor and unworthy of reverence. In a way, when we take part in the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner way we make a mockery of what it's supposed to be and we belittle the Jesus who has died for us on the cross very serious things indeed 
This is why we receive the command in verse 28 and verse 31. Verse 28, but a person must examine himself. And in so doing, he is to eat the bread and drink the cup. Verse 31, but if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. We are commanded to examine ourselves before we take part in the Lord's Supper. Since taking part in the Lord's Supper is such a sacred event, since it's such a reverent thing, and since we're commanded to examine ourselves, that's exactly what we're going to do. I want everyone who plans to take part in the Lord's Supper in just a moment, I want you to come forward. I want you, you can kneel at the altars if you can kneel, if you can't sit in the first pew. To come to the altars to pray, to examine yourselves. As we examine ourselves, let's be sure we are born again disciples of Jesus. We can't declare our allegiance to Christ if we have not received Christ. Let's be sure there's no unconfessed sin or no rebellion in our lives, that we are surrendered to Christ. Let's check our attitudes to be sure there's no divisiveness, no pride, no hypocrisy, no selfishness, nor any other attitudes unworthy of what we're doing. And if we find these things present, let's repent of them. Let's confess them as sin. And let's ask God to give us grace to change our attitudes. And let's be sure to pray that our hearts and minds would be so focused on Jesus that He is all we're thinking about in these last few moments of the service. As Free Will Baptist, we believe taking part in the Lord's Supper is the great privilege of every born-again disciple of Christ. So we practice what is called open communion. What open communion means is you don't have to be a member of the Free Will Baptist Church to take part in the Lord's Supper today. You don't have to be a member of any Free Will Baptist Church to take part in the Lord's Supper. You only have to be someone who has repented of your sins, believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you are a born-again disciple of Jesus, and you say, I can take part, it's good enough for us. It's between you and the Lord after that. So what I want to do is I want to have everyone that's going to take part come forward and examine themselves And then after examining yourself, don't go back to your pews in the far reaches of the universe. Come and sit on the first few pews so the deacons will have an easier time of distributing the communion elements. So I'd ask all to come forward.
could have our, our deacons come at this time. Brother Joe, would you offer a prayer of thanks for the broken body of Jesus? God, our Heavenly Father, is good and fair, Lord. We thank you for this occasion where we have to commemorate your sacrifice on the cross for our sin. Help us each one, Father, to realize it was for us that you died and gave your life. Just bless us and partake of this, that you help us to fully realize and understand the great sacrifice that was made for us. In your name we pray. The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. This do in remembrance of me. Let's eat in remembrance of Christ's broken body for us.
Brother Gerald, would you offer a prayer of thanksgiving for the shed blood of Jesus? Father, we come to you now thanking you for your mercy, your grace, your forgiveness. We thank you, Jesus, that you died and did we cannot comprehend and imagine all the pain and suffering you went through to purchase our salvation. Our sins cost a great price, and you paid that price. We thank you for the shed blood cleanses us from our sins. Father, we thank you for what you've done. We can't praise and thank you now. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink in remembrance of me. Let us drink in remembrance of Christ's blood, which was shed for the remission of our sins.